0: Coming up, we have Barbara Min talking about identity assurance and news from support next on Novell Open Audio. Welcome to Novell Open Audio, the podcast that connects the Novell user community with what's going on inside and around the Novell universe. I'm your host, Aaron Quill. And I'm Randy Goddard. And today we have Bob Ramin coming in to talk to us about Identity Assurance. Randy, you were actually part of that interview, weren't you? I was. So you got to give me the quick overview. What's Identity Assurance before I have to listen to the whole podcast?
1: It's a collection of our products and third-party products as a solution for access to resources.
0: And then when you say access to resources, that's via like biometric fingerprint authentication, something like that. Exactly. Right? So I prove who I am. And now all of a sudden I have rights to all sorts of things, not just simple things like file systems and whatnot.
1: Or physical things such as the door opening for you have access to those resources, which your business determines you need access to.
0: Okay. So it does include physical security type things. Correct. Cool. Well, let's listen to Bobber describe it.
2: Hi, I'm Caitlin, and I'm in the studio today with Randy, and we're going to talk to Barbara Amin, who is the Senior Product Manager over Identity and Security, and we're going to have a little chat about Identity Assurance. Hello, Caitlin. Well, hi, Barbara. It's good to have you here.
3: Thank you. <laughs> Hello, Randy. Good day.
2: So, Barbara, tell us a little bit about Identity Assurance. I know it was demoed on the Friday keynote, and we'd like to get a bit more of an understanding of what it's about and how companies could use it perhaps follow through a use case of how a company would actually implement it and how it could fit in their environment?
3: Excellent. So Identity Assurance is really a solution that is created from different products in the Identity and Security Business Unit from Novell. It's based heavily on Identity Manager. Novell Identity Manager takes advantage of the user provisioning module, the user workflow.
2: So you would need identity manager if you're going to use identity assurance?
3: Yes. If you look at the identity assurance solution, identity assurance solution comprises of identity manager, user provisioning module, specialized drivers or connectors that connect identity manager to a biometric enrollment station, a physical access control station, a card management system a life cycle, an identity life cycle system, which is specifically geared and coded to comply with the FIPS standard, the FIPS 201 standard, which is the federal information processing standard from the government, specifying how PIV cards or personal identification and verification cards are going to be issued to all federal employees. So there's a life cycle driver, the workflow is coded to comply with that standard. Okay. Um, it also includes the Novell Enhanced Smart Card Method, which is where the logical authentication component of identity assurance comes into play. So, so is
2: that tied in with NMAS at all or not? That
3: is, that is true. The Enhanced Smart Card Method is a NMAS method, and it is called Identity Assurance Client, which basically is the Enhanced Smart Card Method. So Identity Assurance Solution comprises is is really a bundle of all of these things. The IDM, Identity Manager, User Workflow Provisioning, the set of drivers, the Identity Assurance Module, which is a set of five drivers, and the Identity Assurance Client. Okay. So, Bobber, how would a customer implement this
1: now that we've identified the pieces or the components that are needed? How would this be implemented in a particular environment? Can you give us kind of a use case scenario for it?
3: Sure. Typically, because we're talking about identity assurance, I mean, define what an assured identity is first. So an assured identity is a binding of a managed identity with a strong managed credential. And that binding has obviously some kind of a trust factor behind it because if you're going to bind an identity and a credential, you're going to put some amount of effort or some amount of trust goes behind that binding. That is what an assured identity is. So the first concept, the first part of usage is the creation of an assured identity. We all have assured identities and assured identities have different levels of assurity. So this badge that I'm wearing is an assured identity only valid in the context of this building here at Nobel campus, these four walls, right? I cannot take this badge show up at the airport and say, let me on a plane, right? They would require a driver's license or a passport. Similarly, I can't take that driver's license and go to a different country and say, I am barber. And my driver's license says I'm barber. Let me in the country. No, they wouldn't require a higher level of assured identity, which is the passport. So, We know this from a real-world scenario. There are concepts, and this is the same concept again, that there are assured identities that exist today. What we have done is we're basically bringing that down to an enterprise level and really letting the enterprise decide what you want to do when you create an assured identity. Novell, at this point, has decided that the fact that I get hired, I fill out an I-9 form, I show them my work permit, my passport, my birth certificate, that I am allowed to possess this Novell ID, and I'm an assured identity at that point. If I was working for the federal government, there would be extra steps required. One of those steps would be taking my fingerprints, checking against some kind of a background database, um, taking more biometric data, maybe an iris scan or some other sort of biometric data uh, further background information than is available on i9 form take all of that information and now that vet that information and then create a assured identity out of that right that's what that credential is so assured uh, identity assurance starts with a person it allows you to create an assured identity which is the binding based on your policies, we don't dictate policy, we enforce policy and we allow you to decide what your policy is, what your business values and business policies are to create those assured identities. It allows you to create that assured identity. And then it ends with the enforcement of that identity and all the access control and access rights that are given to that assured identity. So starts with a person, and is enforced by the system. Okay. And in the middle is the, the all the process from the start to the end is the whole process is the identity assurance solution. So we handle not just
1: the enforcement of the policy, but also the binding that you've mentioned. I imagine the policy then is, of course, based on current enterprise needs that the customer has federal government regulations, and so forth. And, and we kind of wrap all of that together with identity assurance.
3: That is true. And we don't do that all ourselves. Novell is not in the business, for example, of capturing biometric data or writing algorithms that do biometric verification, one-to-one match, one-to-N match. Novell is not in the business of a credential management system. So we do this with partners. And Identity Assurance Solution, we have a consortium of four companies, Novell being the one that is providing the world-class IDM system, which is the heart of the system to the whole solution. Active Identity providing the card management system, which is the credential management system where the actual binding is happening. ImageWare systems providing the enrollment and the algorithms for biometric enrollment, biometric matching. And Honeywell providing the physical access control and the controls for physical access system, building control system, visitor management, and tying the user population that you've just enrolled with the access for physical or for visitor management and enforcing that using video, video analytics. Okay. So if a customer were to come to us and say, where do I begin
1: with this whole process? Could you maybe explain a little bit about that?
3: Yes. So... That would really depend on what regulations they have to follow, first of all. For example, if they are a government customer or a federal customer and they have to follow either the HSPD-12 regulation and they have to issue a PIV card or a TWIC card or a FRAC card, then they would start in that space because that's the specification, that's the goal.
1: And which one of our partners would assist in that particular step?
3: They can actually come directly to Novell for that. Our federal team normally takes care of that. We have also are also building relationship with the um, uh, systems integrators like Unisys, CRC, SRA, CSC, um, SRA. Um, they would go to one of those integrators and they would partner with us. They can also go directly to the Honeywell Federal sales team, and then they will bring the solution back through us. So there are different routes to market and different ways of the customer coming to us and contacting us. If the customer is just talking about creating a more holistic identity and saying that I want to use a single set of credentials for logical and physical access, or you're saying, you know, I don't want to go that far yet, but I just want to make sure that my provisioning, it's not the same credential, but at least when I provision a user in my identity management system, I automatically have provisioning done for physical access because I want to streamline my provisioning and my deprovisioning. Then that's the business value that they're getting out of that. And more importantly, deprovisioning is more important every day because as we collect more and more data to do business, we actually acquire more and more liability because all of that data that is helping us do business we are also liable for the protection of the data that data gets out so so not only are we are actually collecting information to help us do business we're also opening ourselves to risk so protection of that risk or mitigation of that risk is important and all of a sudden we're saying look security is not a spend anymore security is an actual part of your business decision making and making sure that you actually are mitigating risk, which means security is helping you improve your bottom line rather than it's a spend, which has traditionally security has been a spend.
2: That's been the mentality for a long time.
3: And it still is to a huge degree. And we're shifting, we're changing that and a lot of regulations that are out there are are helping shape that change because they are forcing people to look at it from a different point of view. For example, people are trying to say that companies should be held liable for providing adequate protection to their employees. So that means that in case of a terrorist threat or a natural disaster, Novell might be liable for not being able to protect its employees in a reasonable fashion.
1: Our customer who is interested in this solution... Is it suggested that they work directly with us, Novell, or is it suggested that they start perhaps with somebody local, such as a systems integrator?
3: Customers can obviously come to us. They can come to us from an IDM perspective. They can come to our federal team. They can come to us from an identity assurance perspective. They can go to the SIs that we are working with, or we can take them to the SI. System um, integrators, right? System integrators. System integrators. Novell as, as a whole still is generally very direct sales-focused and oriented. We are switching from that model to more indirect and more uh, partner, not completely switching but augmenting it with a partnering sale model and an indirect sale model. But right now, you know, if customers need to acquire identity assurance... They will basically be contacting their local representative, their local Novell representative, or their NTS representative, or just picking up the phone and calling Novell. And then we can set them up with our partners. We will introduce the partners into the equation. We'll make sure that the partners then uh, bid the right thing to them. Uh, We can provide them consulting services to actually deploy the solution or get them in touch with an SI who will do those same steps. Okay. Okay.
2: So just a question on what actually needs to be installed physically on the, the machines that would be involved, so including the local workstation and, say, the back-end service. Can you perhaps just take us through what components would be installed where?
3: Sure. Again, you're going to install IDM. Mm-hmm. So IDM will be installed either on a Windows 2003 server box or SLES server box. You're going to have the user workflow with provisioning, that again will be installed either on a Windows 2003 server box or a SLESS server box. Then you will have, and I'm going to talk about the full solution, so including partner products. Then you will have Imageware's Epi Designer, Epi Builder, um, their Bio Engine. So the Bio Engine is their uh, server side piece. The Bio Engine requires Windows 2003 server. Then you will have Active Identities Card Management System, which also requires Windows 2003 Server or Solaris backend. Then you have Honeywell Smart Plus Integration Server and Honeywell ProWatch. So Honeywell Smart Plus Integration Server is the uh, web services piece that connects Identity Manager and ProWatch together. Okay. So uh, Smart Plus Integration Server and ProWatch also requires Windows uh, Windows 2003 Server. On the client, for a full identity assurance solution, you have to make sure that you have client desktops that fulfill three different roles. The first role is the sponsor, which is somebody who is going to sponsor the end user as an enrollee. So that sponsor can just be a hiring manager. It can be somebody in HR. Their desktop doesn't really matter because all they're doing is running our workflow. So Uh, Because our workflow is all available via a web browser, they just need access to a web browser, and they will open up the user portal and look at what the different capabilities they have, and they can sponsor a user and put some basic information in there.
1: What does that really mean, to sponsor a user?
3: So the terminology that I'm using here, like a sponsor, a registrar, um, an issuer, an adjudicator, These are the terms that are defined in the FIPS 201 standard. And because that is what's driving the whole concept of assured identity to start with, we use a lot of those terms. So sponsor really is somebody who's going to say, I would like, Barbara, I would like Rick to have a card. So I am going to basically sponsor you to get a credential. And I'm going to, that can be the HR person who hired you, that could be your hiring manager, that could be a separate agency even. It could be that you actually work for, you're a contractor and you work for Acme Inc., but you're hired to work at Hill Air Force Base. And Hill Air Force Base is actually sponsoring you to get a credential because you're working in a federal facility, you need to have a credential that is applicable in a federal facility. Okay. So ACME, who's your employer, doesn't sponsor you, but Hill Air Force Base is the one sponsoring you. So that kind of defines what a sponsor is. Thank you. Once the sponsorship process is done, the next step is the registration process. The registrar's job is a little bit more involved and they have to have further training to be a registrar because what a registrar does, they have to collect the biometric data or other information that is required for you to create that. Assured identity. They're also going to ask you to provide documentation.
2: So that'd be more like an HR department type of decision?
3: It would be more than an HR department, really, because a registrar is the one who will actually know how to take your fingerprints, for example. So they have to be trained to take fingerprints. Taking fingerprints is not an easy job because you have to have just the right quality for it to be valid. So they would be trained to take fingerprints, they would be trained to look at your passport and your driver's license and make sure that, you know, it's real. It's real that, yeah. Yeah, it's not a fake or it's not, you know, made in your garage on colored paper or in using a printer. So they have set level of training. So the registrar's desktop, because it's going to require capturing of biometric data, and I'm talking about the extremes at this point, right? Because if you're going to capture all sorts of biometric data, then you have to have all sorts of devices attached to that machine. So there are certain devices that are authorized or that are approved by the federal government at this point that captures and follow certain standards and capture a certain quality oh, okay. um, so in that case that desktop is going to be a windows desktop right now it will have Epi builder and Epi designer the two products from imageware and those products run on Windows. It will be hooked to a cross-match guardian device, which is a fingerprint capture device. It will capture slaps and rolls. It will be hooked to So a-
4: just,
2: just a quick question there. A slap
3: versus yes. a roll? Sorry. Um, <laughs> the fingerprint capturing is done in two modes. You can capture slaps, which not mean that you get slapped, but basically what it means is that you put your hand or the the four fingers all flat at the same time and they're captured all at the same time so that's why it's called a slap because you're basically slapping the device at that point and holding it like that and the scanner will scan all four fingers at the same time
1: mm. okay.
3: okay a roll is that you take each individual finger you start on one end of the finger and uh, you roll it through and oh, it captures the okay. bigger yeah, surface sense. area and captures more points so a single device capable of capturing both slaps and rolls is better because it captures more quality, it captures more detail, and then it gets segmented properly uh, and stored. You'll have some kind of a digital camera assigned there, so you'll have either a Canon camera or a Kodak camera. to so the cameras that work with that system or any camera pretty much that has a remote interface on it. So you can actually take a picture by pressing a button on your keyboard. It will also have digital signature capture pads, so a Topaz Siglight or something like that, which will let you actually capture your John Hancock in an electronic format because that signature is also stored and checked against or could be checked against. So those are the devices that you're attaching. Now, in addition to that, it might also have scanner because they might take a copy of your I-9 form and store a PDF electronically. You might take a copy of your driver's license or a copy of your passport and store that electronically. It's also possible to have the um, output from the scanner hooked to document authentication program. And these document authentication programs are already uh, written to validate passports and driver's licenses on certain features. So what you do is you put your passport or you put your driver's license there, it'll scan it, not only will it validate the authenticity of the driver's license, it will actually read the data, OCR capability, read the data off the driver's license and populate it into the form automatically.
2: Is that application a third-party application or is that one of the ones that comes with one of the four vendors that you listed that we work with?
3: Uh, Document authentication and document verification does not come with the vendors that I listed. This would be a completely third-party application from a company like Documentum or somebody else, and that would be an extra level of engagement added to to bring that to bear. So that's the registrar's desktop, right? And that's a Windows-based desktop with devices attached to it. So then we get to the next role, because once you've registered, you've done all the processes, now you get to the adjudicator. The adjudicator in the HSPD-12 environment is the person who gets to say final yes or no after the background check has come back. So background check when it happens, you get an AFIS hit, an AFIS no hit, or a AFIS error. If it's an error, you have to resubmit the information. If you get a hit on you, then that means something is an issue. Now, you can get a hit without being a problem. So I probably will get a hit because my fingerprints are in the system because when I got naturalized, they took my fingerprints. So It's possible depending on where they are checking, if they're checking a criminal database versus just a generic search across the thing, it's possible to get a hit. It's also possible to get a hit depending on the match. Depending
2: on the what, sorry?
3: Match. Fingerprints are not an absolute science. Oh, okay. So that's why there's an adjudication step. Because an adjudicator at that point decides, say, oh, person got a hit. Why did they get a hit? Is this something that I can just approve regardless of whether they got a hit, or do I have to do further inquiries at this point? So they can either instantiate further inquiries, or they can just say, you know what, I'm just going to say issue the card or issue the credential. I'm okay with this. So the adjudicator will, again, because the adjudication is done in our uh, user app, the workflow component, the adjudicator can use any desktop because all they are their interface into the whole That's system. That's web-based? It is, web, uh-huh. is a web-based interface. Once you've adjudicated that, then Novell IDM and our drivers, we generate a card production request, which is a specific format, and information in that format is sent over to Active Identity's card management system. At that point, the Active Identity card management system, the front end of that is also browser-based. So it's a, it's a web front end to it. So you can use any... Any desktop, as long as you have access to a browser from that desktop, you can use any desktop. The only kicker there is that as part of the issuing station, that, that issuing station, you would need a smart card reader writer because you're going to actually write to a smart card.
2: Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Okay. So sense.
3: the current system, that the way it works right now with the drivers and everything else, we recommend that that be a Windows desktop. Because it's using Active Client, it's using the precise biometric MC two fifty smart card reader, which actually has a fingerprint scanner on top of the smart card reader. Because the process involves that when you are being issued a card, you go to the issuer, they are going to issue you the card. As part of the issuing the card, they ask you to re-scan your fingerprint, one of the index fingers. That index finger is checked against the template at uh, the minutiae stored on the card and if those things match then you're allowed to proceed so Caitlin you can't go and say I'm Barber and you know present all the right documentation and, and well, say I think we
2: look a tiny bit different so they probably figure that one out
3: but you could fake out the documentation and you know so. <laughs> I'm picking this up for Barber so you, you have to be physically present. I mean, that's a policy, right? You don't have to have that policy enforced, but the absolute enforcement is that the person who's picking up that card has to match their live print captured against the minutia stored on the card. So that workstation we've talked about is, again, Windows desktop. At the end now, for logical access, you're going to use the Novell enhanced smart card method for doing X509 smart card-based authentication. In that case, you can use... Windows desktops with NMAS and the enhanced smart card method and a smart card reader attached to it. And um, hopefully by the end of this year, if we are on track, we will have that same exact capability working with uh, SLED. We have it working with SLED, but it's not in production form yet. Because of the lack of certain drivers and and, uh, lack of certain middleware, we're not able to support all the cards and all the middleware yet. Um, So... By the end of end of this year, we will programize it a little bit more and productize that portion on SLED also. Does that answer your question? Sorry, it was a long-winded answer.
2: But it was a very thorough one. I think that gives you a really good picture of, of everything that's involved.
1: One last question. It sounds like a lot for any given company to do, and now I see why a third party would need to be involved perhaps to take care of everything, really, from the registration process through the card management process, uh, issuing the card, as well as even then the logical and physical access to resources. That's where our systems integrators would come in handy to have on board with this. Yes. Or do you find most uh, customers pulling a lot of that internal as well?
3: No. What you have to realize, and I'm I, I'm I'm making it simpler than it is actually. Um, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> because, because there are other players in this situation, in this setup. Uh, so we haven't even talked about the people who are actually producing the card, because you just have this plastic, you know, blank with the chip on it. You order um, a box of cards, and they And they, they have to have a certain profile. They have to have certain applets. They have to have certain uh, containers on that card for you to be able to put information in certain containers it's like a file system so the card production is not even we haven't even talked about the card production because it's outside the scope of this because those are big giant vendors out there that are producing cards that have business relationships with big organizations to produce those cards the thing is that all of these systems in some varying degrees are already part of every enterprise Every enterprise has some sort of a credential, so don't get hung up on cards, because that's just the example for HSPD-12. Every company, every enterprise has a credential. You have two of them at Novell. We have our physical access credential, which is this badge, and you have a password to access the logical system. So you have two credentials that are actually not yours. Both of these credentials, even your password, is the property of Novell. So there's a system already in place. We already have an enrollment system. That's the enrollment system starts in building C when you get your badge printed they take a picture of you over there and they issue you a card because they have card stock sitting there. Now imagine tying that system, they're already that's the enrollment right there. That's the registration. Tying that with a card that is a multi-technology card so that now your card is not only a card that is able to be read by all the door readers on campus, but you have a little PC Prox or a smart card reader on your desktop, and you put your card when you get to your desktop and you log in using that same card that you used to enter the building, which means that I can't just give you my card and say, you know what, log in as me, because... Either I'm in the building or I'm not in the building. And if you have my card, then I'm not logged in. If I'm in two different complexes at the same time or I'm logged into two different places at the same time, because of, because of the tracking nature now, right, this is where Sentinel comes in. So now if Sentinel was tracking my physical access into the building and it says, wait a minute, Barber is in Provo and Waltham at the same time, but he's logged into Waltham, okay, there's a problem. A red flag gets thrown. A red flag gets thrown. So now you have to correlate. So you have negative correlation, positive correlation. So that was a negative correlation because you can't have both things happen at the same time. A positive correlation event is that my jack, my, my network jack in my office is not turned on all the time. The minute I enter the building, as I go through the turnstile on the bottom, the network jacks in my office get turned on. The minute I leave the building, they get turned off. Really?
2: You can do that? That's cool. I've never heard of that before.
3: Yes, because all of these network jacks, they're not wired. There's no hard wiring. They all go to a switch now and the switch is software controlled. Uh, If it's software controlled, that means I can base that on an event. I can turn on a VLAN. I can turn off a VLAN. I can put you on a different VLAN. This becomes really important in terms of a security lockdown, because if I have to terminate and cut off your access today. If I terminate a user, if I cut down, cut off their access, it doesn't affect them until they re-log in or try to authenticate to a resource they weren't authenticated. If you're already connected to a file system or logged in, you're going to stay in that system until a timeout happens or something. There is no hard cut you off at the knees. Well, if I'm connected to the jack, I will turn off that port. It doesn't matter. That can be a wireless port. That yeah, can be a hard say port.
2: Yeah, uh, if we could do that with wireless.
3: Yes, so it's just a port. You're you're When you connect to wireless, you're also connecting to, to a, a channel and a port. Back end, yeah. mm-hmm. So if I turn off that port, I can cut immediate access. So imagine in a fire drill, what happens right now in a security lockdown or a fire drill or actual emergency, you have people all go out and then they go back in for some reason. So imagine that you're doing this and you have the capability of, with a single press of a button, shutting down all Novell employees access to building H except for five people who work for Troy Hales in security. And it's not a permanent off, like right, that you can't turn it back on in five minutes after the drill is over. You know, it's just temporary. You just suspend it, then you resume it. All that power actually comes because Novell IDM has the capability of connecting multiple systems, taking information from satellite systems, propagating in that information to other satellite systems, and it's all event based. Great.
2: Very, very cool. Very cool. Well, I think that probably wraps it up today. We'd like to thank Barbara for coming into the studio today. And hopefully we can have you back sometime in the future.
3: Sure. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Well, that was cool, but it definitely took Barbara a lot longer to describe it than it took you, Randy. (laughs) Just call me succinct. (laughs) You're succinct and direct and to the point. So you know what time it is? No. It is time for News From Support.
2: Hi, I'm Caitlin, and we're here with the guys from Support, Dave and Randy. Good Randy, Hi, it's good Caitlin. to see that you're still alive.
1: No broken bones, Katie.
2: Yeah, I think we probably have to tell our listeners a little bit about this. There was a group of four of us, and we went on a little mountain biking trip in our lunch break. In one of the the canyons here, just close to work. Randy decided he was going to take a little bit of a headfirst trip off the side of a ledge, going straight for a nice big rock, followed by quite a big stream. (laughs) I don't want to say creek, because it was a fair bit bigger than a creek. It was very pretty, actually. Slow-mo. Yeah, it was slow-mo, and the bike was all on top of him, and he's got some pretty good war wounds to prove that he actually took a good tumble.
1: Most of them I cannot
4: show in public. Your face almost looks pretty now.
1: <laughs> Bright red.
2: <rib. laughs> Little rouge. So it's good that you're still alive and it's good that you're still here with us. Really. Thank you. It's good to be here. <laughs> so, Dave, tell us what's well, happening in Tidland?
4: Not a great deal. I took a look and I found three that were reasonably interesting. And I haven't a lot of time to look anyway because I'm traveling off to Europe tomorrow and I to do some training. One of the ones that I thought was best was playing multimedia files on the desktop in SUSE Linux Enterprise Desktop 10 doesn't work. And the reason is that the codecs required for DVD playback, specifically commercial DVDs, are all proprietary. And the as the SUSE Linux Enterprise Desktop product was released, Novell didn't have the necessary rights to distribute the codecs. It shows a little bit of the problem that exists in this arena Novell's working with partners to resolve that, but uh, obviously that's the kind of thing you'll come across occasionally with Linux, but there's always a way to deal with it, and the best one really is to hold out for the updates when they come along. Do you have one of those multifunction printers? It has printers, scanner, fax, and all that stuff, and wondered, how do I get a printer driver to make that work in Linux? Well, if you have a three-in-one device, then... Printing, the printing part of it is handled by cups, but the scanner is just an ordinary scanner. So you go into Yast, select hardware, select scanner, and select the manufacturer or model of your device, and you're done. That's not really an intuitive one, because your natural reaction is to treat it as one device. Go ahead and treat it as a scanner independently of it being a printer and solve that problem. That's good to know. VMware locks up when trying to use the Browse button. This one's kind of interesting to me because I just installed VMware on my new laptop supercomputer. And I haven't had this problem, but it locks up when you use the Browse button. Uh, you open a terminal, use SU to become root, and then you fix a, a library by renaming it, create a new soft link to it. But that's just a little bit of a kludgy little fix to a problem in... VMware running on SUSE Linux Enterprise Desktop 10 That's all I have, just wanted to mention quickly that I should have some nice material in a few weeks for the uh, future episode I'm visiting Prague for a week to do a kernel developer training course and the following week I will be in Nuremberg to work with some of the developers over there, so I'm hoping that I can pick up some hints and tips and bring them back.
2: That would be awesome
1: Boy, what a life. A jet setter over there.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so, Randy, tell us, what have you got for us today? Well,
1: one comment on, on the last tid that uh, Dave mentioned here. That problem for our OpenSUSE listeners, that problem also exists for VMware Server and VMware Workstation on OpenSUSE. If you check out the OpenSUSE site, there is a wiki that explains the very same thing on which libraries to fix for which application.
4: And we should mention, there are a lot of sites like that related specifically to Novell products, and those wikis are very powerful. I, As I say, I just got a new laptop and installed OpenSUSE 10.2 relatively easy, but there's always those little extra things like the fingerprint reader that you can't live without. So... Uh, I was. I spent a lot of time on a wiki and uh, started at the OpenSUSE website and found a lot of great information that got my computer up and running just the way I wanted it.
1: Awesome.
2: Cool. 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 Thanks.
1: Other interesting news that I have. This comes to us by a colleague of mine, Cameron Cedar. I've mentioned him before. He's written a number of good, cool solutions. He's uh, recently released three of them specific to. SLES 10, SLES 9, and OES. If you've ever had the problem of using RUG and updating your servers, if you do a RUG pin dash dash entire dash channel, you get everything. Lot. Yeah,
2: everything. Mm-hmm.
1: Including kernel updates. In some cases, you don't want those kernel updates. So what Cameron has done is he's written a number of very concise and clear scripts that you can use to exclude
4: the kernel updates in your RUG update. So why is it that someone wouldn't want to use the kernel updates?
1: Oh, let's imagine somebody's got a SAN on the back end, Mm -hmm. that they have a driver that only supports a particular revision of the kernel. Right. If they were to update and pull everything down, no SAN.
2: I mean, you'd have to be pretty careful, though, because, I mean, if you were not updating your kernel, but you updated your NSS module, say, for example... If you're looking at an OES server, that could potentially cause you grief.
1: The potential does exist there, and, and that's why this is definitely something worth some debate amidst our users and amidst our development is to see which is the best method to update these servers.
2: Well, sounds cool. Well, thanks, guys, for coming in on such short notice.
4: Thank you. It's a Dave, pleasure. Dave,
2: have a great trip. Come back in one piece. I Randy? Try you too after the next trip mountain biking
1: no mu- no mountain biking for me for at least a week <laughs> and dave bring me chocolate you
4: got it
0: That's all for this show, and remember, Novell Open Audio is brought to you by Novell Users International in conjunction with Novell Incorporated. Remember that most of our content is driven by you, our listener community, so please send us suggestions or comments of stuff you'd like to see in future shows. That's all for this time. We'll see you next time.